0: Section 3 of Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 16 Gregarious and Slavish Instincts i propose in this chapter to discuss a curious and apparently anomalous group of base moral instincts and intellectual deficiencies that are innate rather than acquired by tracing their analogies in the world of brutes and examining the conditions through which they have been evolved they are the slavish aptitudes from which the leaders of men are exempt but which are characteristic elements in the disposition of ordinary persons the vast majority of persons of our race have a natural tendency to shirk from the responsibility of standing and acting alone, they exalt the vox populi, even when they know it to be the utterance of a mob of nobodies, into the vox day, and they are willing slaves to tradition, authority, and custom. The intellectual deficiencies corresponding to these moral flaws are shown by the rareness of free and original thought as compared with the frequency and readiness with which men accept the opinions of those in authority as binding on their judgment i shall endeavour to prove that the slavish aptitudes in man are a direct consequence of his gregarious nature which itself is a result of the conditions both in his primeval barbarism and of the forms of his subsequent civilization. my argument will be that gregarious brute animals possess a want of self-reliance in a marked degree that the conditions of the lives of these animals have made a want of self-reliance a necessity to them and that by the law of natural selection the gregarious instincts and their accompanying slavish aptitudes have gradually become evolved then i shall argue that our remote ancestors have lived under parallel conditions and that other causes peculiar to human society have acted up to the present day in the same direction and that we have inherited the gregarious instincts and slavish aptitudes which have been needed under past circumstances although in our advancing civilization they are becoming of more harm than good to our race it was my fortune in earlier life to gain an intimate knowledge of certain classes of gregarious animals the urgent need of the camel for the close companionship of his fellows was an ever exhausted topic of curious admiration to me during tedious days of travel across many north african deserts i also happen to hear and read a great deal about the still more marked gregarious instincts of the lama but the social animal into whose psychology i am conscious of having penetrated most thoroughly is the ox of the wild parts of western south africa it is necessary to insist upon the epithet wild because an ox of tame parentage has different natural instincts for instance an english ox is far less gregarious than those i am about to describe and affords a proportionally less valuable illustration to my argument the oxen of which i speak belonged to the damaras and none of the ancestry of these cattle had ever been broken to harness they were watched from a distance during the day as they roamed about the open country and at night they were driven with cries to enclosures, into which they rushed much like a body of terrified wild animals driven by huntsmen into a trap their scarred temper was such as to make it impossible to lay hold of them by other means than by driving the whole herd into a clump and their sewing the leg of the animal it was desired to seize and throwing him to the ground with dexterous force with the oxen and cows of this description whose nature is no doubt shared by the bulls I spent more than a year in the closest companionship i had nearly a hundred of the beasts broken in for the wagon for packs and for the saddle i travelled an entire journey of exploration on the back of one of them with others by my side either labouring at their tasks or walking at leisure and while others again who were wholly unbroken and who served the purpose of an itinerant larder, at night when there had been no time to erect an enclosure to hold them i lay down in their midst and it was interesting to observe how readily they then availed themselves of the neighbourhood of the camp-fire and of men conscious of the protection they afforded from prowling carnivora whose cries and roars now distant now near continually broke upon the stillness these opportunities of studying the disposition of such peculiar cattle were not wasted upon me i had only too much leisure to think about them and the habits of the animals strongly attracted my curiosity The better i understood them the more complex and worthy of study did their minds appear to be but i am now concerned only with their blind gregarious instincts which are conspicuously distant from the ordinary social desires in the latter they are deficient thus they are not amiable to one another but show on the whole more expressions of spite and disgust than of forbearance or fondness they do not suffer from an ennui which society can remove because their coarse feeding and their ruminant habits make them somewhat stolid neither can they love society as monkeys do for the opportunities it affords of a fuller and more varied life because they remain self-absorbed in the middle of their herd while the monkeys revel together in frolics scrambles fights loves and chatterings yet although the ox has so little affection for or individual interest in his fellows he cannot endure even a momentary severance from his herd if he is separated from it by a stratagem or force He exhibits every sign of mental agony he strives with all his might to get back again and when he succeeds he plunges into the middle to bathe his whole body with the comfort of closest companionship this passionate terror at segregation is a convenience to the herdsman who may rest assured in the darkness or in the mist that the whole herd is safe whenever he can get a glimpse of a single ox it is also cause of great inconvenience to the traveller in ox wagons who constantly feels himself in a position towards his oxen like that of a host to a company of bashful gentlemen at the time when he is trying to get them to move from the drawing-room to the dinner-table and no one will go first but every one backs and gives place to his neighbour the traveller finds great difficulty in procuring animals capable of acting the part of four oxen to his team the ordinary members of the wild herd being wholly unfitted by nature to move so in prominent and isolated a position even though as is the custom, a boy is always in front to persuade or pull them onwards. Therefore, a good four ox is an animal of an exceptionally independent disposition. Men who break in wild cattle for harness watch assiduously for those who show a self-reliant nature, by grazing apart or ahead of the rest, and these they break in for four oxen. The other cattle may be indifferently devoted to ordinary harness purposes or to slaughter but the born leaders are far too rare to be used for any less distinguished service than that which they learn are capable of fulfilling but a still more exceptional degree of merit may sometimes be met with among the many thousands of de cattle it is possible to find an ox who may be ridden not indeed as freely as a horse for i have never heard of a feat like that but all other events wholly apart from the companionship of others and an accomplished rider will even succeed in urging him out at a trot from the very middle of his fellows with respect to the negative side of the scale i do not recollect definite instances i can recall general impressions of oxen showing a deficiency from the average ox standard of self-reliance about equal to the excess of that quality found in ordinary four oxen thus i recollect there was some capital of a peculiarly centripetal instinct who ran more madly than the rest into the middle of the herd when they were frightened and i have no reason to doubt from general recollections that the law of deviation from an average would be as applicable to independence of character among cattle as one might expect it theoretically to be the conclusion to which we are driven is that few of the demara cattle have enough originality and independence of disposition to pass unaided through their daily risks in a tolerably comfortable manner they are essentially slavish and seek no better lot than to be led by any one of their number who has enough self-reliance to accept that position no ox ever dares to act contrary to the rest of the herd but he accepts their common determination as an authority binding on his conscience an incapacity of relying on one's self and a faith in others are precisely the conditions that compel brutes to congregate and live in herds and again it is essential to their safety in a country infested by large carnivora, that they should keep closely together in herds. No ox grazing alone could live for many days unless he was protected, far more assiduously and closely than is possible to barbarians. The Damara owners confide perhaps 200 cattle to a couple of half-starved youths who pass their time in dozing or in grubbing up roots to eat. The owners know that it is hopeless to protect the herd from lions, so they leave it to take its chance. And as regards human marauders, they equally know that the largest number of cattle watchers they could spare could make no adequate resistance to an attack. They therefore did not send more than two, who were enough to run home and give the alarm to the whole male population of the tribe to run in arms on the tracks of their plundered property. Consequently, as I began by saying the cattle had to take care of themselves against the wild beasts, and they would infallibly be destroyed by them if they had not safeguards of their own which are not easily to be appreciated at first sight of their full value we shall understand them better by considering the precise nature of the danger that an ox runs when he is alone it is not simply that he is too defenceless but that lie is easily surprised a crouching lion fears cattle who turn boldly upon him and he does so with reason The horns of an ox or antelope are able to make an ugly wound in the poor chest of a springing beast when he receives its thrust in the same way that an over-eager pugilist meets his adversary's counter hit hence it is that a cow who has calved by the wayside and has been temporarily abandoned by the caravan is never seized by lions the incident frequently occurs and as frequently are the cow and calf eventually brought safe to the camp and yet there is usually evidence in footprints of her having sustained a regular siege from the wild beasts but she is so restless and eager for the safety of her young that no beast of prey can approach her unawares this state of exaltation is of course exceptional cattle are obliged in the ordinary course of life to spend a considerable part of the day with their herds buried in the grass where they can neither see nor smell what is about them a still larger part of their time must be spent in placid rumination during which they cannot possibly be on the alert but a herd of such animals when considered as a whole is always on the alert at almost every moment some eyes ears and noses will command all approaches at the start or cry of alarm of a single beast is a signal to all his companions to live gregariously is to become a fibre in a vast sentient web overspreading many acres it is to become the possessor of faculties always awake of eyes that see in all directions of ears and nostrils that explore a broad belt of air it is also to become the occupier of every bit of vantage ground whence the approach of a wild beast might be overlooked the protective sense of each individual who chooses to live in companionship are multiplied by a large factor and he thereby receives a maximum of security and a minimal cost of restlessness when we isolate an animal who has been accustomed to a gregarious life we take away his sense of protection for he feels himself exposed to danger from every part of the circle around him except the one point at which his attention is momentarily fixed and he knows that disaster may easily creep up to him from behind consequently his glance is restless and anxious and is turned in succession to different quarters his movements are hurried and agitated and he becomes a prey to the extremest terror there can be no room for doubt that it is suitable to the well-being of cattle in a country infested with beasts of prey to live in close companionship and being suitable it follows from the law of natural selection that the development of gregarious and therefore slavish instincts must be favoured in such cattle it also follows from the same law that the degree in which those instincts are developed is on the whole the most conductive to their safety if they were more gregarious they would crowd so closely as to interfere with each other when grazing the scattered pasture of demoral land if less gregarious they would be too widely scattered to keep a sufficient watch against the wild beasts i now proceed to consider more particularly why the range of deviation from the average is such that we find about one ox out of fifty to possess sufficient independence of character to serve as a pretty good four ox why is it not one in five or one in five hundred the reason undoubtedly is that natural selection tends to give but one leader to each suitably sized herd and to repress superabundant leaders there is a certain size of herd most suitable to the geographical and other conditions of the country It must not be too large or the scattered puddles which form their only watering places for a great part of the year would not suffice and there are similar drawbacks in respect to pasture it must not be too small or it would be comparatively insecure thus a troop of five animals is far more easily to be approached by a stalking huntsman than one of twenty and the latter than one of a hundred we have seen that it is the oxen who graze apart as well as those who lead the herd who are recognised by the trainers of cattle as gifted with enough independence of character to become four oxen they are even preferred to the actual leaders of the herd they dare to move more alone and therefore their independence is undoubted the leaders are safe enough from lions because their flanks and rear are guarded by their followers but each of those who graze apart and who represent their superabundant supply of self-reliant animals have one flank and the rear exposed and it is precisely these whom the lions take looking at the matter in a broad way we must justly assert that wild beasts trim and prune every herd into compactness and tend to reduce it into a closely united body with a single well-protected leader that the development of independence of character in cattle is thus suppressed below its otherwise natural standard by the influence of wild beasts is shown by the greater display of self-reliance among cattle whose ancestry for some generations have not been exposed to such danger what has been said about cattle in relation to wild beasts applies with more or less obvious modifications to barbarians in relation to their neighbours but i insist on a close resemblance in the particular circumstance that many savages are so unamiable and morose as to have hardly any object in associating together besides that of mutual support if we look at the inhabitants of the very same country as the oxen i have described we shall find them congregate into multitudes of tribes all more or less at war with one another we shall find that few of these tribes are very small and few very large and that it is precisely those that are exceptionally large or small whose condition is the least stable a very small tribe is sure to be overthrown slaughtered or driven into slavery by its more powerful neighbour a very large tribe falls to pieces through its own unwieldiness because by the nature of things it must be either deficient in centralization or straitened in food or both a barbarian population is obliged to live dispensedly, since a square mile of land will support only a few hunters or shepherds. On the other hand, a barbarian government cannot be long maintained unless its chief is brought into frequent contact with his dependents. And this is geographically impossible when his tribe so scattered as to cover to a great extent of territory. The law of selection must discourage every race of barbarians which supplies self reliant individuals in such large numbers as to cause tribes of moderate size to lose their blind desire of aggregation it must equally discourage a breed that is incompetent to supply such men in sufficient abundant ratio that the rest of the population to ensure the existence of tribes of not too large a size it must not be supposed that gregarious instincts are equally important for all forms of savage life but i hold from what we know of the clannish fighting habits of our forefathers that they were every which as applicable to the earlier ancestors of our european stock as they are still to a large part of the black population of africa there is moreover an extraordinary power of tyranny invested in the chiefs of tribes and nations of men that so vastly outweighs the annaculous power possessed by the leaders of animal herds as to rank as a special attribute of human society eminently conductive to slavishness if any brute in a herd makes itself obnoxious to the leader the leader attacks him and there is a free fight between the two the other animals looking on the while but if a man makes himself obnoxious to his chief he is attacked not by the chief single-handed but by the overpowering force of his executive the rebellious individual has to brave a disciplined host there are spies who will report his doings a local authority who will send a detachment of soldiers to drag him to trial there are prisons ready built to hold him civil authorities wielding legal powers of stripping him of all his possessions an official executioner is prepared to torture or kill him. The tyrannies under which men have lived, whether under rude barbarian chiefs, under the great despotisms of half-civilized oriental cultures or under some of the more polished but little less severe governments of modern days, must have had a frightful influence in eliminating independence of character from the human race. Think of Austria, of Naples, and even of France, under Napoleon the Third. It was stated in eighteen seventy that according to papers found at the Tuileries, twenty six thousand six hundred forty two persons had been arrested in france for political offences since the second of december eighteen fifty one and that fourteen thousand one hundred eighteen had been transported exiled or detained in prison i have already spoken in hereditary genius of the large effects of religious persecution in comparatively recent years on the natural character of races i shall not say more about it here but it must not be omitted from the list of steady influences continuing through ancient historical times down in some degree to the present day in destroying the self-reliant and therefore the nobler races of men i hold that the blind instincts evolved under these long-continued conditions have been ingrained into our breed and that they are a bar to our enjoying the freedom which the forms of modern civilization are otherwise capable of giving us a really intelligent nation might be held together by far stronger forces than are derived from the purely gregarious instincts a nation need not be a mob of slaves clinging to one another through fear and for the most part incapable of self-government and begging to be led but it might consist of vigorous self-reliant men knit to one another by innumerable ties into a strong tense and elastic organization the character of the corporate action of a nation in which each man judges for himself might be expressed to possess statistical constancy it would be the expression of the dominant character of a large number of separate members of the same race and ought therefore to be remarkably uniform fickleness of national character is principally due to the several members of the nation exercising no independent judgment but allowing themselves to be led hither and thither by the successive journalists orators and sentimentalists who happen for the time to have the chance of directing them our present national dispositions make it possible for us to attain the ideal standard of a nation of men all judging soberly for themselves and therefore the slavishness of the mass of our countrymen in morals and intellect must be admitted fact in all schemes of regenerative policy the hereditary taint due to the primeval barbarism of our race and maintained by latter influences will have to be bred out of it before our descendants can rise to the position of free members of an intelligent society and i may add that the most likely nest at the present time for self-reliant natures is to be found in states founded and maintained by emigrants servility has its romantic side in the utter devotion of a slave to the lightest wishes and the smallest comforts of his master and in that of a loyal subject to those of his sovereign but such devotion cannot be called a reasonable self-sacrifice it is rather abnegation of the trust imposed on man to use his best judgment and to act in the way he thinks the wisest trust in authority is a trait of the character of children of weakly women and of the sick and infirm but it is out of place among members of a thriving resolute community during the fifty more years of their middle life Those who have been born in a free country feel the atmosphere of paternal government very oppressive. The hearty and earnest political and individual life which is found when every man has a continued sense of public responsibility and knows that success depends on his own right judgment and exertion is replaced under despotism by an indolent reliance upon what its master may direct, and by a demoralizing conviction that personal advancement is best secured by solicitations and favour. sixteen Chapter Seventeen, Intellectual Differences. It is needless for me to speak here about the differences in intellectual power between the different men and different races, or about the convertibility of genius as shown by different members of the same gifted family achieving eminence in varied ways, as I have already written at length on these subjects in Hereditary Genius, and in Antecedents of Englishmen of Science it is however well to remark that during the fourteen years that have elapsed since the former book was published numerous fresh instances have arisen of distinction been attained by members of the gifted families whom i quote as instances of hereditary thus strengthening my arguments end of chapter seventeen chapter eighteen mental imagery anecdotes find their way into print from time to time of persons whose visual memory is so clear and sharp as to present mental pictures that may be scrutinized with nearly as much ease as prolonged attention as if they were real objects i became interested in the subject and made a rather extensive inquiry into the mode of visual presentation in different persons so far as could be gathered from their respective statements it seemed to me that the results might illustrate the essential differences between the mental operations of different men that they might give some clue to the origin of visions and that the course of the inquiry might reveal some previously unnoticed facts it has done all this more or less and i will explain the results in the present and in the three following chapters it is not necessary to trouble the reader with my earlier tentative steps to find out what i desired to learn after inquiry had been fairly stated it took the form of submitting a certain number of printed questions to a large number of persons See Appendix e, there is hardly any more difficult task than that of framing questions which are not likely to be misunderstood which admit of easy reply and which cover the ground of inquiry i did my best in these respects without forgetting the most important part of all namely to tempt my correspondents to write freely in fuller explanation of their replies and on cognate topics as well these separate letters have proved more instructive and interesting by far than the replies to the set questions The first group of a rather long series of queries related to the illumination, definition and colouring of the mental image and were framed thus. Before addressing yourself to any of the questions on the opposite page, think of some definite object. Suppose it is your breakfast table as you sat down to it this morning, and consider carefully the picture that rises before your mind's eye. 1. Illumination. Is the image dim or fairly clear? Is its brightness comparable to that of the actual scene? 2. Definition are all the objects pretty well defined at the same time or is the place of sharpest definition at any one moment more contracted than it is in a real scene three colouring are the colours of the china the toast bread crust mustard peat marsli or whatever may have been on the table quite distinct and natural the earliest results of my inquiry amazed me i had begun by questioning friends in the scientific world as they were the most likely class of men to give accurate answers concerning this faculty of visualising to which novelists and poets continually allude, which has left an abiding mark on the vocabularies of every language and which supplies the material out of which dreams and the well-known hallucinations of sick people are built to my astonishment i found that the great majority of the men of science to whom i first applied protested that mental imagery was unknown to them and they looked on me as fanciful and fantastic in supposing that the words mental imagery really expressed what i believed everybody supposed them to mean they had no more notion of its true nature than a colour-blind man who has not discerned his defect as the nature of colour they had a mental deficiency of which they were unaware and naturally enough supposed that those who affirmed they possessed it were romancing to illustrate their mental attitude it will be sufficient to quote a few lines from the letter of one of my correspondents who writes these questions presuppose assent to some sort of proposition regarding the mind's eye and the images which it sees this points to some initial fallacy it is only by a figure of speech that i can describe my recollection of a scene as a mental image which i can see with my mind's eye i do not see it any more than a man sees the thousand lines of Sophocles which under due pressure he is ready to repeat the memory possesses it etc much of the same result followed inquiries made for me by a friend among members of the french institute on the other hand when i spoke to persons whom i met in general society i found an entirely different disposition to prevail many men and a yet larger number of women and many boys and girls declared that they habitually saw mental imagery and that it was perfectly distinct to them and full of colour The more I pressed and cross-questioned them, professing myself to be incredulous, the more obvious was the truth of their first assertions. They described their imagery in minute detail, and they spoke in a tone of surprise my apparent hesitation in accepting what they said. I felt that I myself should have spoken exactly as they did. If I had been describing a scene that lay before my eyes, in broad daylight, to a blind man who persisted in doubting the reality of vision reassured by this happier experience i recommended to inquire among scientific men and soon found scattered instances of what i sought though in by no means the same abundance as elsewhere i then circulated my questions more generally among my friends and through their hands and obtained the replies that are the main subject of this and of the three next chapters they were from persons of both sexes and of various ages and in the end from occasional correspondence in nearly every civilized country i have also received batches of answers from various educational establishments both in england and america which were made after the masters had fully explained the meaning of the questions and interested the boys in them these have the merit of returns derived from a general census which my other data lack because i cannot for a moment suppose that the writers of the latter are a haphazard proportion of those to whom they were sent indeed i know some who disavowing all possession of the power and of many others who, possessing it in too faint a degree to enable them to express what their experiences really were, in a manner satisfactory to themselves, sent no returns at all. Consequently, statistical similarity was, however, observed between the sets of returns furnished by the schoolboys and those sent by my separate correspondents. And I may add that they accord in this respect with the oral information I have elsewhere obtained. The conformity of replies from so many different sources which was clear from the first, the fact of their apparent trustworthiness, being on the whole much interested by cross-examination, though I could give one or two amusing instances of breakdown, and the evident effort made to give accurate answers, have convinced me that it is a much easier matter than I had anticipated to obtain trustworthy replies to psychological questions. Many persons, especially women and intelligent children, take pleasure in introspection, and strive their very best to explain their mental processes i think that a delight in self-dissection must be a strong ingredient in the pleasure that many are said to take in confessing themselves to priests here then are two rather notable results the one is the proved facility of obtaining statistical insight into the processes of other persons minds whatever a priority objection may have been made as to its possibility and the other is that scientific men as a class and feeble powers of visual representation there is no doubt whatever on the latter point however it may be accounted for my own conclusion is that an overready perception of sharp mental pictures is antagonistic to the acquirement of habits of highly generalised and abstract thought especially when the steps of reasoning are carried on by words as symbols and that if the faculty of seeing the pictures was ever possessed by men who think hard it is very apt to be lost by disuse the highest minds are probably those in which it is not lost but subordinated and is ready for use on suitable occasions i am however bound to say that the missing faculty seems to be replaced so serviceably by other modes of conception chiefly i believe connected with the incipient motor sense not of the eyeballs only but of the muscles generally that men who declare themselves entirely deficient in the power of seeing mental pictures can nevertheless give lifelike descriptions of what they have seen and can otherwise express themselves as if they were gifted with a vivid visual imagination they can also become painters of the rank of royal academicians the facts i am now about to relate are obtained from the returns of one hundred adult men of whom nineteen are fellows of the royal society mostly of very high repute and at least twice and i think i may say three times as many more are persons of distinction in various kinds of intellectual work As already remarked, these returns taken by themselves do not profess to be of service in a general statistical sense, but they are of much importance in showing how men of exceptional accuracy express themselves when they are speaking of mental imagery. They also testify to the variety of experiences to be met with in a moderately large circle. I will begin by giving a few cases of the highest of the medium and of the lowest order of the faculty of visualizing. The hundred returns were first classified according to the order of the faculty. As judged by the best of my ability, from the whole of what was said in them, and of what I know from other sources of the writers, and the number of prefix to which quotation shows its place in the class list. End of Chapter Eighteen, Chapter Nineteen, Vividness of Mental Imagery, From returns furnished by one hundred men, at least half of whom are distinguished in science or in other fields of intellectual work, cases where the faculty is high. One, brilliant, distinct, never blotchy. 2. Quite comparable to the real object, I feel as though I was dazzled, e.g., when recalling the sun to my mental vision. 3. In some instances, quite as bright as an actual scene. 4. Brightness as in the actual scene. 5. Thinking of the breakfast table this morning, all the objects in my mental picture are as bright as the actual scene. 6. The image once seen is perfectly clear and bright. 7. Brightness at... First, quite comparable to actual scene. 8. The mental image appears to correspond in all respects with reality. I think it is as clear as the actual scene. 9. The brightness is perfectly comparable to that of the real scene. 10. I think the illumination of the imaginary image is nearly equal to that of the real one. 11. All clear and bright. All the objects seem to me well defined at the same time. 12. I can see my breakfast table or any equally familiar thing with my mind's eye quite as well in all particulars as I can do if the reality is before me. Cases where the faculty is mediocre. 46. Fairly clear and not incomparable in illumination with that of the real scene, especially when I first catch it. Apt to come fainter when more particular attention to. 47. Fairly clear, not quite comparable to that of the actual scene. Some objects are more sharply defined than others, the more familiar objects coming more distinctly in my mind. 8. Fairly clear is a general image. Details rather misty. 49. Fairly clear but not equal to the scene. Defined but not sharply. Not all seen with equal clearness. 50. Fairly clear. Brightness probably at least one-half to two-thirds of original. The writer is a physiologist. Definition varies very much one or two objects being much more distinct than the others but the latter comes out clearly if attention be paid to them fifty one image of my breakfast table fairly clear but not quite as bright as the reality altogether it is pretty well defined the part where i sit and its surroundings are pretty well so fifty two fairly clear but brightness not comparable to that of the actual scene the objects are sharply defined some of them are salient and others insignificant and dim but by separate efforts, I can take a visualised inventory of the whole table. 53. Details of breakfast table when the scene is reflected on are fairly defined and complete, but I have had a familiarity of many years with my own breakfast table, and the above would not be the case with the table seen casually unless there was some striking peculiarity in it. 54. I can recall any single object or group of objects, but not the whole table at once. The things recalled are generally clearly defined. Our table is a long one. I can, in my mind, pass my eyes all down the table and see the different things distinctly, but not the whole table at once. Cases where the faculty is at the lowest eighty nine dim and indistinct, yet I can give an account of this morning's breakfast table, split herrings, broiled chickens, bacon rolls, rather light-coloured marmalade, faint green plates with stiff pink flowers, the girls' dresses etc etc. I can also tell where all the dishes were. And where the people sat. I was on a visit. But my imagination is seldom pictorial except when sleeping and waking, when I sometimes see rather vivid forms. Ninety. Dim and not comparable in brightness to the real scene. Badly defined with blotches of light. Very incomplete. Ninety one. Dim poor definition. Could not sketch from it. I have a difficulty in seeing two images together. Ninety two. Usually very dim. I cannot speak of its brightness but only of its faintness. Not well defined and very incomplete. 93. Dim, imperfect. 94. I am very rarely able to recall any object, whatever, with any sort of distinctness. Very occasionally an object or image will recall itself, but even then it is more like a generalized image than an individual image. I seem to be almost destitute of visualizing power as under control. 95. No power of visualizing. Between sleeping and waking, illness and in health. eyes closed some remarkable scenes have occasionally presented themselves but cannot recall them when awake with eyes open and by daylight or under any circumstances whatever when a copy could be made of them on paper i have drawn both men and places many days or weeks after seeing them but it was by an effort of memory acting on study at the time and assisted by trial and error on the paper or canvas whether in black yellow or color afterwards 96 is only a figure of speech that i can describe my recollection of a scene as a mental image which i can see my mind's eye the memory possesses it and the mind can at will roam over the whole or study minutely any part ninety seven no individual objects only a general idea of a very uncertain kind ninety eight no my memory is not the nature of a spontaneous vision though i remember well where a word occurs in a page how furniture looks in a room etc The idea is not felt to be mental pictures, but rather the symbols of facts. 99. Extremely dim. The impressions are in all respects so dim, vague, and transient that I doubt whether they can reasonably be called images. They are incomparably less than those of dreams. 100. My powers are zero. To my consciousness, there is almost no association of memory with objective visual impressions. I recollect the breakfast table, but do not see it these quotations clearly show the great variety of natural powers of visual representation though the returns from which they are taken have as i said no claim to be those of one hundred englishmen taken at haphazard nevertheless to the best of my judgment they happen to differ among themselves in much the same way as such returns would have done i cannot procure a strictly haphazard series for comparison because in any group of persons whom i may question there are always many too indolent to reply or incapable of expressing themselves, or whom from some fancy of their own are unwilling to reply. Still, as already mentioned, I have got together several groups that approximate to what is wanted, usually from schools, and I have analysed them as well as I could, and the general result is that the above returns may be accepted as a fair representation of the visualising powers of Englishmen. Treating these according to the method described in the chapter of Statistics, we have the following results in which, as a matter of interest, I have also recorded the highest and the lowest of the series. Highest. Brilliant. Distinct. Never blotchy. First sub-octile. The image once seen is perfectly clear and bright. First octile. I can see my breakfast table or any equally familiar thing with my mind's eye quite as well in all particulars as I can do if the reality is before me. First quartile. Fairly clear. Illumination of actual scene is fairly represented. Well defined. Parts do not obtrude themselves, but attention has to be directed to different points in succession to call up the whole. Middlemost. Fairly clear. Brightness probably at least from one-half to two-thirds of the original. Definition varies very much. One or two objects being much more distinct than the others, but the latter come out clearly if attention be paid to them. Last quartile. Dim. Certainly not comparable to the actual scene. I have to think separately of the several things on the table to bring them clearly before the mind's eye, and when I think of some things, the others fade away in confusion. Last octile. Dim and not comparable in brightness to the real scene. Barely defined, with blotches of light, very complete. Very little of one object is seen at one time. Last sub I am very rarely able to recall any object whatever with any sort of distinctness, very occasionally an object or image will recall itself, but even then it is more like a generalised image than an individual one. I seem to be almost destitute of visualising power as under control. Lowest. My powers are zero. To my consciousness, there is almost no association of memory with objective visual impressions. I recollect the table, but do not see it. I next proceed to colour, as specified in the third of my questions, and annex a selection from the returns classified on the same principle as in the preceding paragraph. End of chapter 19 End of section 3